makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power. Greetings and good day and welcome, my relatives. I shake your hands with a good heart. This is First Voices Radio on Teokas in Ghost Horse, sending you greetings from the highlands of the Esopus or the so-called Catskill Mountains in the lands of the Muncie-speaking Lenape. This is an all-native hosted, all-native produced First Voices Radio, and Liz Hill produces First Voices Radio. Okay, I want to welcome our guest host, Kiala Kelly, Kanaka Maoli from Hawaii as she interviews Max Wilbert and Will Falk regarding Pihimaha, or Thacker Pass, on affected lands of northern Nevada's Fort McDermott Paiute tribe. After an expedited permitting process under the Trump administration, the Bureau of Land Management approved Lithium Americas Corporation's plan to build a massive lithium mine and refinery at Thacker Pass on January 15, 2021. Construction has been repeatedly delayed due to a protest camp lawsuits, and concerted opposition from regional Native American tribes, environmental organizations, and a local farming and ranching community. And now, Kayla Kelly with Will Falk and Max Wilbert. An update. Thank you for joining us. And thank you, Kayla. Aloha. Welcome to First Voices Radio. I'm, I'm very excited to hear about how, how your appearance in court went yesterday. So um, we, were, we were in uh, federal district court in, in Reno, Nevada, we were uh, there for what are called summary judgment arguments. So in in cases like this, where you ask a, a federal judge to review a federal agency's decision, which we were we were asking a federal judge to review the process that the Bureau of Land Management um, used to permit the Thacker Pass open pit lithium mine project, which is a lithium mine project that would destroy um, a number of historic properties, um, but also uh, two massacre sites that are very uh, culturally, religiously, and historically significant to um, especially northern Paiute people in, in northern Nevada. Uh, Thacker Pass is known as Pahimaha in the local Paiute uh, dialect. Um, and it's actually a, a name that comes from one of the, the massacres that happened there. So what, is it, what does the name mean when you say it comes from one of the massacres that happened there? What, what, give us, when was that massacre and why is that the name? So the massacre is is uh, described in oral history. There's not a um, known date that it came from the first one of the two massacres, um, but the Pihimaha massacre. Pihimaha means uh, rotten moon, and uh, the story goes that um, there was a camp in in Thacker Pass in Pihimaha. Um, and uh, of Paiute people, and um, the hunters were away in in a valley um, over the mountains away, uh, and they returned back to the camp to find uh, everyone there uh, massacred and with their um, guts cut open and their intestines strung across the the sagebrush. Um, Thacker Pass, the land is, is sort of shaped like a crescent moon. And the smell of of the carnage there um, 
um, was really rotten. So the the place got the name Rotten Moon, Pahi Maha. Uh, Pahi is rotten in Paiute, and Maha is moon in, in Paiute. So who, who committed the massacre? Uh, they believe it was uh, likely uh, Pitt River people, um, which are uh, another group of Native people in the uh, northern Nevada, southern Oregon um, area. Mm-hmm. Now, Max, I know that you guys have been up there or you've been resisting this lithium project for two years now, right? Is it is it almost like exactly two years? Like when did you begin this? It was January 15th of 2021 when Will and I drove down there from uh, my home in Oregon and set up the protest camp uh, that was in place for about 10 months on the site of the proposed mine. And, you know, at that time, Thacker Pass wasn't really in the news, there were a few stories about it in, uh, you know, in mining industry publications, but uh, there were no lawsuits. None of the regional tribes were involved. None of the regional tribes even knew about the project because the consultation didn't even happen. The notification didn't even happen. And so, yeah, it's been two years now. And in some ways, it seems like we're still just in the early stages of this fight. There's a long way to go. And uh, as you know very well, Kiala, with the all the work that you've done and all the work to protect Mauna Kea, for example, these fights can just drag on and on and on and on for years. That's a really depressing part of, um, I think, activism in general, when you take on particularly uh, massive corporations that are supported by the government. I, I want to say two things. I, I did read some of the stories that were done yesterday following up on your appearance in court. And it looked like a couple of hundred people showed up, which is great, uh, considering there was a lot of snow on the ground in those photos. Tell us a little bit about Lithium America. It's Lithium Americas, and they're actually a Canadian corporation. They are headquartered in Vancouver, B.C., and they're traded on the Toronto Stock Exchange. And they're uh, they're a lithium mining company. They don't have a producing lithium mine yet, but their most advanced project is actually down in Argentina in South America at a place called Cochari Oloros, where they have a, a brine lithium brine extraction project which they co-own with a Chinese company. Um, that project has been down there in Argentina. Lithium Americas has been accused of human rights violations, of environmental destruction, and serious abuses. There was actually a report, an expose in the Washington Post a few years ago that looked into the the situation down there, uh, which hasn't gotten any, any better. But uh, right now, actually, Lithium Americas, this company, is in the process of splitting in half. So they're going to split their North American operations from the project down in Argentina. A big part of the reason for that is that the Argentina project is co-owned with a Chinese corporation called Ganfang Lithium, which is the biggest uh, lithium company in the world. And Ganfang, uh, being a Chinese company, is sort of a persona non grata for... Um, the U.S. government with all the uh, U.S.-China conflict and saber-rattling that's going on right now over trade and Taiwan and all the different issues between the U.S. and China. So um, the association between Lithium Americas and China 
has been very inconvenient for the corporation because there are uh, U.S. senators and Congress people who are arguing that the government, the federal government here in the U.S. shouldn't support Lithium Americas, shouldn't give them any loans, shouldn't give them any type of support um, because of this Chinese connection. So they're splitting the company uh, into two different uh, companies and basically trying to offload that Chinese connection so that they can access some of the uh, billions of dollars in federal funding that the Biden administration has earmarked for uh, lithium mining and domestic production inside the U.S. of what they call critical minerals for the the green energy transition. Mm-hmm. Will, you were just saying a, a few moments ago that it's you were talking just about Thacker Pass, the place itself. You know, just to give listeners a sense of it, just visually, how many acres are we talking about, and is it going to create sort of a bowl of toxic mining materials and devastation of the place? Yeah, so I guess I'll describe um, Thacker Pass first. Um, Thacker Pass is this uh, beautiful expanse of old growth sagebrush. Um, A lot of people think of sagebrush as just like this bush or something, but um, sagebrush uh, can be, there can be um, a four or five foot tall sagebrush can be 125, 150 years old. Um, so there's this this notion of old growth sagebrush, like like old growth forests, and um, it's it's this expanse of old growth sagebrush that um, stretches between two mountains. Um, there's the Montana Mountains in the north and the Double H Mountains in the south. Uh, those mountains are um, covered in well, the, the Double H Mountains are a traditional obsidian procurement district. Um, so, so, um, indigenous peoples have been gathering obsidian there. Um, I think they've documented artifacts there that are 7,000 years old. Um, but, uh, you know, Paiute people say they've been there forever. Um, and there's these gorgeous red rock outcroppings on both sides of the mountains. Um, these really dramatic, uh, caves and, and, um, um, red stones that, that are really beautiful. Um, the, the, the project itself would disturb over 18,000 acres, um, in this mountain pass. And, um, a, a, a big part of that is, is going to be an, an open pit, um, that they will, I think it, the open pit is something like in the beginning, it'll be 1100 acres, um, and it will be as deep as 400 feet in the ground. Um, they will have to scrape the earth out of this pit, um, and then, um, uh, process that earth, um, using sulfuric acid. Um, and there's only, you know, so much lithium in, in the earth. So, They'll toxify all that earth through this sulfuric acid processing facility, um, and then they'll have to store all the the waste from that on another part of the pass. So there'll there'll be this huge pit, um, and just like you're you know a kid digging in the backyard, there's going to be a huge mound of of earth, toxified earth, next to that pit. Um, it's it's a water intensive process, um, and Nevada is uh, actually northern Nevada is the driest region. Uh, in the in all of the United States, um, and uh, they're going to use uh, 5,200 uh, acre feet of water a year. 
to process. Um, and all that water will be toxified and they have to um, hold that that water in these um, uh, big um, holding pits. Um, and those holding pits, of course, are notoriously leaky. Um, and uh, so, so they'll be toxifying the earth, they'll be toxifying the water, they'll have uh, this big open pit, they'll have this big, huge pile of toxic earth next to it, and they'll have this big, uh, basically toxic uh, pond next to to the mine. Um, they have to they have to build all of the accompanying um, mining uh, facilities. Uh, so, for example, they're they are going to be building a small uh, power station um, and a big electric line into the mine. Um, they have to uh, drill wells um, down at the, the valley that's to the east of, of Thacker Pass and then build water pipelines up to the mine. Um, and then, of course, there's there's things like um, the, the ore processing facility um, has to have all of these accompanying uh, buildings that um, do things like trap the toxic air that comes from um, mining these things. Um, so um they they are going to build this at initially they they have only applied for an 1100 uh, acre open pit um but they do have um what are called exploration uh rights claims across um uh Thacker Pass um so they're going to uh, destroy sort of the north side while they're exploring the south side of the pass um, and, you know, they've said, um, you know, in 50 or 60 years, they'll they'll expand that open pit across all of Thacker Pass. It's hard to get your mind around it, except we know from the history of this industry, the devastation that comes from mining and abandoned mines, especially later. But it's hard to believe that in the driest place in the United States, they would allow for the destruction, basically, of, of, a, of water. Except that I know that on Oahu, I know you guys have probably heard about what's going on with the Navy's contamination of one of the main aquifers of the most populated, isolated island you know, on Earth. So, yeah. I, I, you know, the government doesn't seem to have a problem because if it's going to prosper a corporation, that, that's the norm in the United States. But we were talking about green energy or the greenwashing uh, narrative. What, what's going to come of all of this destruction of this beautiful, pristine, sacred place? How much lithium do they think they can even get out of it? Well, the goal has, their goal has shifted a little bit over time. Originally, they were talking about something like 42,000 tons per year of this lithium carbonate material that they want to use to make batteries for, uh, mostly for electric cars, although a huge part would also be for um, grid-scale energy storage, so giant batteries, not just uh, the medium-sized ones that you get in a car or the large ones you get in a car, but giant batteries built into, you know, warehouses to store energy from, for example, solar panels for periods when the sun isn't shining, like at night or if it's cloudy in the wintertime and so on, um, or wind turbines when the, the, the wind isn't blowing. Um, that One of the challenges with a green energy economy you know, I say this as somebody who's fought fossil fuels for decades now, um, but one of the challenges of a green energy economy is that you have this intermittent power, this intermittent energy from wind and solar. It just is not it's constant. It's not steady, right? It changes over time. Just as the sun goes behind a cloud, the energy output drops way down. And so to have a steady energy supply to power a factory or 
something like that that needs a really steady baseline flow of power, uh, they want a ton of batteries. So it's really all about this uh, this lithium that they want to produce to make batteries. And you know the the lie, the story here is that this is going to solve global warming. This is going to get us away from fossil fuels. Uh, I'm I'm very skeptical of that story. Again, as somebody who's fought global uh, fought fossil fuels for many years, who is incredibly concerned about global warming, um, I think this focus on lithium and electric vehicles and energy storage batteries, I think it's very dangerous because uh, it's telling us this idea that um, that that that's enough that we can just ch- make these technical changes to um, the cars and the energy grid and so on, and all of a sudden we'll reach sustainability. The science doesn't actually back that up. You know, transportation emissions in this country are something like a quarter of, of all emissions, but of, uh, electric vehicles don't have zero emissions. They may not pump out any carbon dioxide out of a tailpipe, right? They don't have a tailpipe. but there's a lot of carbon emissions that are made when you create an electric battery, when you build an electric car, the steel that goes into it, the rubber and the tires, all the um, different type of compounds that go into a car, those all have greenhouse gas impacts and also impacts on the land, impacts on the water, impacts on human communities all around the world. So, uh, you know, that some estimates say that even if we switched every electric car in the U.S. today, right now, by magic, to electric vehicles, it would only reduce emissions in this country by about 6%. And, uh, you know, we need to reduce emissions, but I think we need to not fool ourselves, not kid ourselves, that this modern, highly consumeristic, industrialized uh, way of life can be made sustainable because it's fundamentally not sustainable. And, and I think these electric cars just sort of, um, promote this lie that you buy the right new product from a corporation who's going to make a lot of money and, uh, and everything will be okay. Oh yeah. And you're, that's all anybody thinks they need to do is just sort of switch their technology, not their behavior if that makes yeah. sense. And and it's like, and also the other thing about it is like lithium isn't the only thing that goes into those batteries. There's so many other things being extracted from vulnerable places and vulnerable peoples. I don't know if you guys have been following any of the story about what's been going on in the Congo for cobalt, for instance. All of these other, all of these things that are going into the phones that we use, the computers that we use, and then the cars that we people want to drive are destroying really huge parts of the world and, and, and a lot of the people that are already suffering. Yeah, absolutely. In a lot of ways, I think of uh, Thacker Pass as another, just another story in this ongoing colonial extraction project that's, we're 500 years into this uh, mind set. And it's also very much about capitalism. So, you know, the the story in the U.S. about lithium is already so dumbed down, especially when you have a president and leadership that's so willing to just be full bore extraction for, you know, switching over to something other than oil. Tell me a little bit about how the Department of Interior figures into this. Yeah, the uh, the Department of the Interior um, is is 
the sort of overarching federal um, uh, agency or department, the federal department that uh, oversees the Bureau of Land Management. So the Bureau of Land Management is the federal agency that administers the land where Thacker Pass is. This, uh, this mine would happen exclusively on, on federal public lands. And so with the Bureau of Land Management being under the direction of the Department of the Interior and uh, the Department of the Interior currently having the first ever native secretary of the interior with Deb Holland, you know, we, we often get a lot of uh, people telling us that we should talk to Deb Holland. She's going to save Thacker Pass. Um, we talked to the first native secretary. She's going to um, tell the capitalists to go away and not not blow up Thacker Pass. Um, but of course, that is not happening. She's very pointedly ignoring this whole issue. Even coming uh, to the the Reno Sparks Indian Colony, which is one of the the tribes that um, has uh, challenged the Bureau of Land Management's uh, um, decision here. Even coming to the Reno Sparks Indian Colony and not meeting with uh, with the chairman or with uh, their cultural resources department, which are are people that are really spearheading the fight against uh, the Thacker Pass Lithium Mine. Um, so, you know, a lot of times we we people on the left just uh, automatically assume that the Democratic Party is our friend, and Joe Biden is 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 going to save the planet with his electric cars. And um, because he's so good that he appointed the first uh, ever native secretary of the interior that somehow he, he actually cares about native people. Um, but, you know, this is all a very pointed uh, effort by the Biden administration to um, try and gain some sort of social legitimacy for this um, for this, you know, so-called transition to green energy, which is just more more mining, more industrialism. And um, all of that, uh, especially in, in, in places like the Western United States, um, that means just more destruction of, of Native land and um, Native people's culture. You know, I appreciate you mentioning that about Deb Holland because I, I'm thoroughly disappointed in the way that my own people are trying to get into bed with the Department of Interior and using the excuse that because she's Native, because she's Indigenous, this is somehow a good idea. And I think people conveniently forget that, first of all, these people are appointed. And second of all, then, you know, when that president is out of office, they go too. So everybody in the government is basically as a temporary gig. Uh, you know, and that brings me to this other question. I'm assuming you have two strategies, right? You have your legal strategy, strategy, and then you also have your community engagement. How are these two things working side by side? And, and at what point are these two things coming together? Yeah, it's definitely an inside-outside strategy. We're sort of, you know, there's the legal angle to the, this fight where uh, two regional tribes, the Reno Sparks Indian Colony and the Burns Paiute Tribe, have sued to try and halt this project. Will is representing uh, Reno Sparks in federal court case. Um, four environmental groups have also sued and a local rancher has also sued. So you've kind of got this interesting, uh, you know, cowboy Indian alliance, as mm -hmm. the saying goes, uh, mm -hmm. happening here. Um, you know, those lawsuits, at they're very useful. They're delaying the project. They're creating a lot of uncertainty among investors and so on. But uh, 
fundamentally it's legal in this country to blow up mountains it is legal to destroy sacred sites it is legal to poison water to harm endangered species to destroy wildlife migration quarters corridors all these things are legal fundamentally though all the law says is that you have to if you're going to do that, you have to do it carefully, essentially. You have to inform people that you're going to do it. You have to talk about the fact that you're going to do it. You have to conduct a thorough study of what exactly the harm will look like um, before you do the harm. Uh, you know, that's the challenge with the legal side is that it's incomplete. You know, we can't rely on a legal system that in this country, uh, you know, in regards to uh indian law it's been built around you know the magna carta and this whole doctrine of discovery and it's built on these very rotten foundations or you know in 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 a different sense if you're looking at a environmental sense say you could say the law in this country was built on extraction of natural resources at the fastest possible rate to help grow the american empire and grow the economy of this country um, which, you know, is, is what fuels the war machine and keeps the whole thing humming along. So uh, you need you need multiple strategies. So from the beginning, uh, when we set up the protest camp out there, uh, you know, there was no legal action at the time. But we knew that, uh, you know, just like, again, to go back to what's happened at Mauna Kea, uh, uh, these strategies can can interweave and be mutually supporting in ways that make them stronger together than they are apart. And so, uh, you know, in some ways, the occupation on the ground for 10 months in 2021 helped buy time for some of the legal arguments to take hold. And the legal arguments now are buying more time for spreading the word and doing community organizing and really getting people engaged in this region uh, and, and helping people fall in love with that land so they're ready to fight, to organize, to struggle, to protect it. So you were in court yesterday and it was about summary judgment. By the way, who's the judge? What's the judge's name? The judge's name is Miranda Dew. Uh, she is the chief judge in the uh, uh, federal district of Nevada. She's she's an Obama appointee, so kind of getting back to that um you know, the Democratic Party is going to save us. Um, but she she comes from a corporate background. I represent the Reno Sparks Indian Colony. The only uh, issue that she was um, interested in listening uh, uh, to us argue about is whether or not it was uh, unreasonable for the Bureau of Land Management to fail to consult with the Reno Sparks Indian Colony. In the state of Nevada, 81% of the land in the state of Nevada is actually administered uh, by the federal government, not even by the state of Nevada. The 1872 General Mining Law gives, um, gives people or corporations um, the right to mine if they locate valuable minerals on um, on public lands. Mm -hmm. um, there are plenty of examples in American law where uh, uh, Native communities have said this is literally the most sacred place in the world to us. Um, if there are valuable minerals located there, then um, the government by law uh, must issue a permit um, to allow the mining to happen on those sacred places. So the environmental plaintiffs in this case uh, pointed out that um, the Bureau of Land Management uh, issued a bunch of permits, but never actually verified with the corporation whether there were valuable minerals in, in a big part of the project area. <laughs> 
Um, so the judge, one of the big arguments that the judge is going to have to address is whether or not that was reasonable for the Bureau of Land Management to simply issue permits on the word of the corporation about whether or not there were valuable minerals there. I think it's a really important point for people to understand that under this 1872 mining law, so much of the land in the United States is actually in effect being held in trust for mining corporations um, once they find valuable minerals on public land then american law gives them the right to mine and there's very little we can do legally other than try and force these permitting agencies to to adequately document what they're actually permitting that is what the judge will be considering and that that decision we're hoping that she completely vacates the permits um, sort of a middle ground uh, halfway win would be if she she remands part of of the uh, project back for BLM to reconsider. Um, and then a defeat would be, um, you know, full speed ahead. BLM did nothing wrong. And, and the Lithium Nevada Corporation is is free to start blowing up Thacker Pass. We're running out of time already. Where can people go for more information and how can they support your efforts at this point? Folks can check out uh, our website. It's called protectthackerpass.org. Uh, we definitely recommend that people sign up for uh, the email newsletter on the website or follow on social media, whatever, however you get your notifications about what's happening because we're expecting to put out calls of action, uh, call outs for people to come and join us on the land. Uh, you know, when the time comes, we really might need hundreds or thousands of people to converge on the land there. Max Wilbert, Will Falk, Mahalo Nui for coming on First Voices Radio today and giving us an update on what's going on with Thacker Pass. And I look forward to uh, talking with you both again in a few months. And that's guest host Kayla Kelly with Max Wilbert and Will Falk right here on First Voices Radio. My name is Teokas and Ghost Horse. Our next guest is an award-winning hip-hop artist and producer based in Barrie, Ontario, Canada. With almost 30 years of experience, Plex has raised the bar amongst his Indigenous peers while building a strong and relevant presence in Canadian hip-hop. Since releasing his debut album in 2009, Plex has toured across the U.S. and Canada performing, teaching workshops to Indigenous youth, and running his independent record label, New Leaf Entertainment. In 2022, 10 years after his last album release, Plex presents his latest 12-song LP, Who Am I to Judge? The album speaks directly about Plex's struggles with drugs and alcohol, the evolution of hip-hop cultural appropriation, and the state of the planet while pondering what it may take to fix it. Red Flags, the name of the song we'll be playing, was actually meant to be a follow-up to another song on the album called We Know. Quoting Plex... It focuses on a growing issue in indigenous communities and industries, pretend Indians, people who fabricate stories of a native ancestor to benefit in some way. The song was never intended to be on this album. In fact, the album was ready for launch before Alea and I entered the studio to record Red Flags. It came together so organically and I couldn't stop listening to the final master. So we delayed the release of the album to include Red Flags. The title of the album, Who Am I to Judge, is a double entendre. It genuinely asks the question, who am I to judge, and also lays heavy emphasis on the who part. I think some people are going to wonder, is he talking about me? The answer to that is probably, unquote.
And now Red Flags featuring Aaliyah. I'm sick of this, calling yourself indigenous Don't even know the differences between eagles and pigeons, kid Lying about who you are, thriving off of who you know Captain Lou Albino got me rhyming in the studio Something missing from your claims and that's apparent There's more native DNA in the tracks you're sharing If it wasn't for collabs, bringing natives to the lab I can't even count the times you cross the line like a scab Let's go then, dudes, real newfie with the accent Talking about that land back, well, give it back then Son, how's your melanin? I burn Anglo-Saxons If you ain't down to fist fight Let's settle it on wax then Senior citizens out in Halapu Wasn't on my radar till you showed up giving attitude Paperwork show pics of your cocomas I'll show you all my college diplomas They ain't real, the notion They know about the struggle Every single native rapper in your bubble Here's Plex clearing up any confusion He fooled a couple dummies, now he thinks we're all stupid Red Flags with hip-hop recording artist Plex, featuring Aaliyah. I want to make sure that I welcome you, and it's an honor to have you here on First Voices Radio. I'm grateful to be here. Thank you for having me. Why did this come out now? Because you sounded like you waited. It seemed like you waited in order to, to bring out the lyrics and stepping back, saw the problems, whether they be social or intertribal, tribal, personal, coming out because... We had the time to think, especially the lyrics and your, your experience as a native from where you are in Canada, but it's the same experience down here in the States too. Well, you know, I, I took a break from music for basically a decade. You know, I dabbled a little bit here and there, worked with some artists, when, you know, when requested. But uh, 
I really needed to focus on my sobriety. You know, I didn't want my kids to to grow up in the same environment that I did growing up, which was, you know, heavily influenced by alcoholism and and other forms of abuse. And, uh, you know, I stayed tuned in because I'm a fan of Indigenous music, you know, Indigenous arts in general. You know, if there's any movies that I can see and, and now you're seeing streaming services play, have like an Indigenous category. So I'm going through those and my whole life as a kid, I, I wanted to see more representation. And, you know, I, I've stayed in touch with a lot of, you know, women who are, you know, artists and a lot of them that a lot of the ones that I speak to anyway, had an issue with the pretendian issues. And we, we knew about the pretendian issue because of, you know, share or, or ironized Cody who was, you know, eventually adopted in and has indigenous uh, lineage, uh, but descendants because he married in. But, uh, you know, I hadn't, sometimes when the conversation would come up, people would get very defensive about it. You know, especially if you just ask, which community are you from? People really take offense to that, which to me is a red flag in itself. So that inspired the song itself. And, you know, for me, it's like, even when I would create a song, it's not like I always feel that way. I might sound angry when I wrote it. But it's just like any time where I'm sad, let's say I'm sad and I gravitate towards a specific song, you know, next week when I'm happy, I might not feel that song the same way. But at the time, it was really important to the feeling that I had. And I think that that was kind of the process with Red Flags was that in that moment, I was pretty fired up about the topic and I felt that not enough people were talking about it. And I feel like a lot of times it's it's typically men who kind of stray away from the topic and even in some cases enable that type of behavior where a non-Indigenous person will step in and claim indigeneity, take little bits and pieces of Indigenous people's stories to create their own fabricated story in order to benefit from, you know, grants or different types of funding that's allocated for marginalized Indigenous people, whether it's in schooling or arts funding or, you know, even in politics, we're seeing it, you know, and a lot more people are being called out ever since I dropped the song. It started before that. And here in Canada, we had Joseph Boyden, who, you know, was in the same circles and very accepted in Indigenous communities. And then it came out that he wasn't actually Indigenous. And then there was a director who's also in the same circles named Michelle Latimer, and it came out about her. And then you started seeing more and more people. Uh, more have come out since the song dropped, but, you know, a lot of people are... I'm getting a lot of love, but I'm also getting a lot of resistance as well, uh, especially on Twitter. I don't really use my Twitter account all that all that much, um, but I'm getting tagged and stuff that's basically calling me a racist, which is kind of what I feel like I'm calling out is racism. So I'm a little confused by the negative response to it, but I'm actually trying to focus more on the, all the love and appreciation that I've had since. Thank you for your sobriety and mentioning the kids. And also, you know, the pretend Indian issue is where I think it's our own people. And I've been caught in this too, being a radio host through the years, is not reading enough, not doing enough research, not asking enough questions mm -hmm. that I actually supported non-natives pretending. And that often still happens. You can, you know, in this local area where I live, there's a lot of that going on where they have 116th or 164th native and all of a sudden they're, they're chiefs and whatnot. And this, this still goes on. What happens, you know, in my, in my, in my case, 
I had to call myself out and start doing more research rather than looking for the popularity of a radio show. And I think it may be the same among rappers that there needs to be proof and accountability, as you say, to community where here it's it's who they're pleasing. The 164th native is a chief now. He's a sachem or she's a sachem and they're pleasing a non-native audience. So that's what we're caught up. Is it the same with rapping too with music? Yeah, I do find that there are some people who have infiltrated the circles and because they've been doing it for so long that they're, they're it's more accepted. You know, like my peers, even with the Red Flag song, um, artists who I've collaborated with and get along with, have done shows with, aren't really supporting the song. You know, and, and in a lot of cases, I think that it's probably because of their proximity to anybody that that might this might be describing. Um, you know, I've received some threats, which I, you know, I take with a grain of salt. You know, people get angry. I realize, you know, there will be a re- response. There will be backlash. And I kind of knew that going into this. But uh, for me, I think it, it's, it's, it kind of goes both ways. You know, you're calling somebody out. You know, there's a lot of people that are calling people out and they're not doing enough research. They're kind of rushing into it and calling somebody out. And I feel like that could be dangerous, right? Because you could affect somebody in a negative way. And I wouldn't want to see anybody like hurt themselves or run into a depression or even destroy their careers when they, in fact, do have proof of their ancestry. But then there's a lot, I feel, that get away with it when they have very little proof, you know? And I and it's mostly about taking those stories because we're a very story-driven culture. And to just... It makes me feel a little bit too vulnerable when I share my stories and I and then I hear similarities in somebody else's story that, you know, you, you could see the paperwork. There's a paper trail of when the story started. Oh, this mm-hmm. is this is what I went through as a kid. And then, you know, like it's 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 tough to accept because you put yourself out there in the first place. You're 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 being vulnerable, putting yourself out there, and then to see somebody kind of take a piece of your story and make it their own is it's, it's, it's offensive to me. You mentioned Buffy St. Marie, whom I know from experience back in the 90s when I was in, in school. And what would Buffy do? We're, we're actually referring to the elders of your nation, all nations, because she's everywhere. Um, yeah. and, I, and I go, and now the second part of this, this question comment would be at the end of this, this YouTube version, which I watched, which brought me to, to this interview, it, it's kind of like... At the end, it was this wannabe movie, this non-native, probably colored, um, dressed in a wig, asking the question, was he talking about us? Which to me is the real message in what why you're doing red flags and the what was he talking about us? Because this is truly about delivering the message to them. And maybe we can like pay attention as native people, how gullible, how naive we could be. I think we're just really accepting. You know, we, we're, we're, we're loving by nature. And I think most people are in this case. I think we just, we realize that a lot of us do carry trauma. Most of us carry trauma. So we're, we're very sensitive and vulnerable. And I think in those moments, we don't want to just immediately call somebody out when we're introduced to them. Like, Oh, where are you from? It isn't, it is a standard question for native people to ask that question, but you know, we don't always just come out with that. We don't start off unless it's more like a connecting thing. Like, oh, where, where are you from? Oh, because I got family out that way. You know, maybe we're related. You know, yeah. and I've done DNA tests where it seems like I'm related to 
natives across the board. Like when they say all my relations, I think they really, there's some serious truth to that. We're, we're all related in some way, but uh, <laughs> we're just it trying is, to connect. Yeah, it is true. Cause you know, that to prevent us from marrying within the family, but when we're saying, where are you from? That's actually asking the same question as that's what we do, which leads yeah. me in into this is what we do anyway when we acknowledge each other, especially the lands or the territories we come from. And yet that's the trend in the non-native world is to land acknowledge. Yeah, so so there's a, a land acknowledgement trend going around in circles yes. and non-native yeah. circles, but there's no history behind it, no action, land back. Now what? Yeah, yeah. so I do see it a lot, and I and I do find it kind of bizarre, even when they're bringing in indigenous like elders or anybody who's a representative of their community to come out and do a land acknowledgement because it almost seems like they're rubbing it in our face. But I mean, that's my, my perspective on it. It's like, I don't feel comfortable saying that stuff, but I mean, I think it's a step forward in a, in a way because they're trying their best, but they don't know really how to deal with us. You know, I do believe there should be some type of reparation as far as land back, you know, in Canada, you know, their treaty, there were treaties that were signed and it's my understanding that there was like an agreement that we would kind of split things, you know, and over time. And if you look at as far as like land ownership and and if you're including the reserves up here, we call them reserves up here. Um, we're like 0.2% of the land and the rest is like, you know, privately owned and crown owned. The crown is who basically rules us here. They still refer to it being crown land when it's owned by the government, I guess, to the to the monarchy. Um, you know, so it is kind of, it's, it feels like insulting because there hasn't been a lot of, I've seen like stories of indi individuals who bought land and then gave it back to the, to the whatever communities were nearby. But uh, as far as the government, they don't, you got to fight them in court to kind of get that. It's the only way it happens up here that I that I know of, that I'm aware of. I know there is unceded land in in BC and in Ontario, but uh, just acknowledging it, it it's it's cool in a way, but at the same time, it feels like it's just kind of like. But we're not giving any land back, by the way. I love the fact that you know the title of the album, "Who Am I to Judge?" This double entendre, as they call it, it really asks a question and the emphasis on the who part. And the beginning of Red Flag's song would be, let's finish this. I'm sick of this calling yourself indigenous. It's a toxicity that we have to deal with. Another one, another yeah. sort of ment mental virus. Of course, we have ceremonies, but then it comes to those natives who don't know. And as you, as you say, um, one of the lyrics is, don't even know the difference between eagles and pigeons, kid. And so you put in the form of a kid and how much we as natives have been marginalized and also distanced away from our culture by growing up in, in urban areas. Yeah. And how myself, much do myself. we, re, yeah. How much do we retain and, mm -hmm. and can we actually call out our own questions to ourselves? Well, I think even in, in being an urban native and a lot of natives might be able to, to relate to this is that living in a city environment, especially when I became a teenager, you know, I started taking interest in girls and the way, especially where I grew up in the prairies, there was a pretty blatant racism. Like it was just so normal for native jokes 
things to make fun of us for for being for drinking or for being homeless or for being poor. So as a young native man who's trying to, you know, connect with girls, you know, I mean, hitting that age, uh, you almost want to distance yourself from, from those stereotypes that are out there. And a lot of times it's like basically like disconnecting from who you actually are. You know, if they think you're, you know, Spanish, you know, or, and, and those are our distant cousins, but still if like, if they thought I was from Costa Rica or if they thought I was Lebanese, I, I would accept that before my indigeneity. And I think that that's a normal, a normal thing for those that can kind of live in both worlds. You're trying to avoid it. And there were times where I was like almost embarrassed for like my white friends to see my native grandparents because I didn't want them to think less of me. I was very concerned, very overridden with ego and worried about what others thought. And, you know, trying to reconnect after a time, like, you know, like, and, and, and embrace who you are, you know, it comes with maturity. You know, as I got older, I started, you know, especially in my later teens, I was starting to like feel a little bit more like I want to be a part of the resistance, mainly because, you know, I lost my grandfather over time and he was a huge part of me being connected to our culture. Uh, both my, I was raised by both my Ojibwe and Cree grandparents. And when he passed away, then I felt like, you know, I didn't do enough. You know, there's a lot. I didn't listen enough. I didn't, you know, I didn't embrace everything he was trying to teach me. So I felt like an, it was necessary for me to make up for that, you know, almost like out of guilt. But as uh, the more I learn about, you know, who I am, it became, you know, I wanted to be a voice to people who couldn't be heard or didn't feel like they were heard. And I think even with Red Flags and other songs on this album, I've kind of continued that and have for like over 30 years. Well, thank you for, for starting way back in with uh, the first album, Brainstorm. It says a lot about your thinking and probably your lyrics. And I was only able to listen to a few of those songs and Red Flags stood out over all of them. So mm. I think it's uh, evident that this will come out more down here in the States. But I want to just thank you again as an indigenous peer, you know, I think this is very acceptable amongst us all. I don't rap, but I, I do like it from time to time because I'm from that other generation, right? Mm -hmm. And I think the crossovers that we have behind it is is that there is a indigeneity to hip-hop as it is because the beats there and the similarities to any culture, uh, be it African where it comes out of, and in sub sub American, sub-African here, or American, African-American, Canadian, Canadian-American, or Canadian-African, I don't know how you say it, but the CIA, BIA, it's kind of like that yeah. difference, right? <laughs> yeah, that, that would be the yeah. Canadian Indian Affairs and Bureau of Indian Affairs down here in the state. Yeah. Um, but thank you for, for being here, Doug. Any any last thoughts before we go? It's, it's really good to have you here. You know, I'm just grateful that, you know, you've given me a chance to share share my side of the story. You know, it's, uh, it's it, I really want to embrace other Indigenous artists, inspire them. And I feel that, you know, I've put almost 30 years into this music industry, you know, and, and giving my life to it, you know, and trying to inspire others. And I know that, you know, I've been, had conversations where people have told me I've inspired them. But I think that now we've actually gotten to a place where we're, we're more in demand than we've ever been. 
you know, uh, and we've got talent that is just far beyond anything that I've done in the 20, 29 years that I've been making music. There's new talent coming up and I, and I'm just excited to watch that, you know? So thank you for even having a platform where that music can be heard. So well spoken, just, just, um, you know, again, again, the, the, the album that you're talking about, uh, the song, um, um, quote here speaks directly about your struggles, Plex, with drugs and alcohol, the evolution of hip-hop, cultural appropriation, the state of the planet, while pondering what it may take to fix it. Is there really a fix-it? Uh, you know, I think it's baby steps. You know, I, I think that anything can be fixed. Anybody can be redeemed. You know, somebody could be a villain, but then become a hero. So I think that change is important. If we're going to fix, it's really about recognizing where the problem is and then coming up with solutions. I think that's the only way. And I think that's just human nature that we would do that. Uh, maybe there are systems in place that prevent us from doing it, like like flipping a switch. But I think that there is a way, and I think it requires constant communication, clear communication. Tell tell, Explain how you feel, you know, whether you're angry or sad. Uh, just explain how you feel so that other people can understand. And I think that that is the first step to to fixing it. Flex is an award-winning hip-hop artist and producer based in Barrie, Ontario, Canada. Be cool. Thank you so much. Yeah, for this is good. It was an honor. It was an honor. Awesome. I like your energy. Your energy is great. Thank you. We'll talk again probably. You know, please, some please. I hope you do. Okay. You have a great afternoon. Right. And that was an interview with Plex, who is an award-winning hip-hop artist and producer based in Barrie, Ontario, Canada. I'd like to thank him for his thoughts and considerations. You can now hear First Voices Radio on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Spotify, as well as firstvoicesindigenousradio.org for archive, downloading, and listening. I'd like to thank Liz Hill, our producer of First Voices Radio. My name is Teokasen, Ghost Horse. Sons, the blackout hearts, the flower nudes, skull designs upon my shoes. I can't give everything. This 
Prodigal sons, the blackout hearts, the flower nymphs. 